A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. Welcome to the Second Age Podcast, your guide to Tolkien's world of Middle-earth. We're the Lorehounds. I'm David. And I'm John. This is Chapter 2, The Fall of Numenor. In this episode, we've got three segments for you. First, we've got a history of the adaptations of Tolkien's work in a more or less visual format, including radio. A brief discussion of literary themes and a deep dive into the fall of Numenor. Before we get started, here's a quick reminder that you can send feedback to secondage at baldmove.com, and we'll get to those questions on the final episode, which will be a Q&A. If you want to talk Tolkien with us sooner, join the Bald Move Discord, a link in the description below and also at baldmove.com. And be sure to get all the Bald Move and Lorehounds coverage of Rings of Power by subscribing to the Dug Too Deep podcast feed. We're going to be releasing exclusive content on this feed, so you don't want to miss out. Click on the link in the show notes or search for Doug Too Deep in your podcast application of choice. Okay, John, let's get started with a discussion of the adaptations of the work uh, of Tolkien's work. Yes. Yeah. So kind of like the publications history that we did in uh, chapter one, we thought it would be helpful if people had a kind of lay of the land of what has been done and and what is out there. Um, There's a lot of complexity with the publication, just with the books. There's a lot of complications and, and intricate history with the visual or dramatic adaptations of the work. And a lot of that has to do with the rights. And we're going to touch on that in just a second. But I just wanted to preference one thing that this is not covering are stage productions, role-playing games, card games, video games, anything like that. So this is mm-hmm. really going to cover uh, radio, television, and uh, visual. So kind of all these dramatic forms. So, like I said, the, the the rights history is a messy thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's interesting to note that, at least for the Rings of Power, Amazon, what can you clarify which rights Amazon has uh, to the work? Yeah, from what we know, they have the rights to the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit and everything included therein, which include the appendices, which have a lot of the history that sort of mirrors a Silmarillion in less detail. Got it. So at least for the upcoming show, they don't have access to any of the other books. 
No, they don't. Although there's some word that they can go to the Tolkien estate and ask for certain things to be included, certain details on a case-by-case basis. And I think that this is sort of a uh, an agreement to be faithful to the material, mostly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it gives the Tolkien estate a little bit more leeway in making sure that that happens. Yeah, something I read too was that they they were able so the rights are owned there's a there's like litigation about the rights and who has which rights between New Line and uh who's that guy's name that he sold the rights to a long time ago? Um Saul Zaints, I think yeah, Zaints. Yeah, Zaints and Warner Brothers and there's even active litigation that's happening right now. Um, but as, as I understood it, like Amazon figured out some sort of loophole because television wasn't included in the rights. And then because they're doing this multi-part thing, they were able to go directly to the Tolkien estate and not to any of the other rights holders. So I, that, that was kind of interesting. Yeah, it seems like they were able to separate the television rights from the film rights and, and get the series on that end. Right. So interesting. Um, and I think one of, you had an interesting quote, and I think it sort of sets the tone for why we haven't seen more adaptations and more selling of the rights. Yeah, um, it's funny because the Tolkien estate is so known for being hostile to adaptations and mm-hmm. for being opposed to giving away any other rights or, or greenlighting any other projects. But when you look at Tolkien's biography by Humphrey Carpenter, which is a really great biography, I'd recommend it to anyone wanting to go deeper into this stuff. Uh, it seems like Tolkien himself was not super opposed to adaptations. So here's a quote from that biography. And just to note, Stanley Unwin is Tolkien's contact at his publisher. By this time, it was clear that The Lord of the Rings was something of an international hot property. Stanley Unwin warned Tolkien that offers would soon be forthcoming for the film rights, and the two men agreed upon their policy, either a respectable treatment of the book, or else a good deal of money. As Sir Stanley put it, the choice was between cash or kudos. (laughs) That's pretty telling, right? Yeah, I don't think he was super opposed to an adaptation. I mean, even even if they didn't do it super respectfully, but they got a good payday. It seems like he was open to it, at least at that time. Right. And it really wasn't until Jackson um, came along and was able to, you know, the, the just the filmmaking technology to, to really do justice to it. I mean, we could have done it sooner, but yeah, I don't know. I think I think technology had to catch up to a certain certain point for us to get um, really good adaptations. I agree. But also, I would say that the the biggest thing with the Lord of the Rings trilogy and why it stands out and why it ages so well is mm. that they really didn't rely on CGI very heavily. Is they use so many practical effects. That is very true. Yeah, like all those great shots of um, like if you've watched any of the making of documentaries of the armory for the orc armies, like that's just an incredible, uh, incredible undertaking. Oh yeah, and the whole thing where they were making these things that they called bigatures, which were mm-hmm. miniatures but big, like the oh right the, the statues. Ring. Yeah, yeah, the ring the was huge. In the ring, yeah. The the totally. statues were like eight feet tall instead of being these miniature things, and uh, they they really put a lot of work into making sure everything looked real and didn't look computerized. Right, I think it's important, and I think that's also something we see in Star Wars as well is that sort of reliance on practical effects. Right. Right. So um, just to give people a, a broader picture of, of what has been done, I went to the um, Tolkien Society website, and they've got a great timeline of 
all of the adaptations that have been produced by date. It's sort of a giant uh, um, um, by date timeline. So I broke that up into sort of four categories, radio history, animated history, film history, and television history. Okay. And um, there are some stage productions that have been done, and obviously there's a bunch of role-playing games and tabletop games and video games, and, you know, again, we're not, we're not touching those. So for the radio history, there are, let's see, one, two, three, four different BBC productions that I'm aware of. There was an early one in 55-56 that was a 12-part adaptation, but apparently no known copies of that broadcast are known to exist. So it's Mm. sort of lost in time. Then in uh, 68, they did an eight-part Hobbit adaptation. And then I think the most famous one was in 1980, uh, Brian Sibley and I forget Bakewell's first name, but the other guy's name was Bakewell. They adapted it to a 26-episode 30 minutes each radio drama that for some people that I know of out in the world, that is a definitive um, adaptation of The Lord of the Rings. It's beautiful. There's a lot of Foley art in there. They use sound effect. Like it's a real radio drama. Um, And it's just an incredible production. I don't know if you've ever heard it, but it's mm, it's super good. Yeah, I've not heard it, but it's it's funny because Tolkien is saying, oh, you know, we either get kudos or cash. But then when this thing gets, you know, all this all this publicity, he's, as to my understanding, did not really enjoy the production because he felt like it cut so much out. Right. Uh, so so it's funny how the feelings change once the things begin production. Right, right. Um, cool fact, uh, Ian Holmes, who played Bilbo in the Peter Jackson movies, he played Frodo in the BBC radio adaptation. So when I was listening hmm. to it, I was like, wait a minute, that's Ian Holmes. Like, it was it's sort of an incredible, <laughs> like, whoa. And I think there's a couple of other actors who, who play in, in multiple parts in that as well. Okay. Um, a- apparently in 92, the BBC did another thing where they produced something called Tales from the Perilous Realm, which includes a bunch of material from Farmer Gillies of Ham, Smiths of Wooten Major, and a whole bunch of some Bombadil stuff. Um, and so I don't know much about that. I don't know if you've heard of that one at all. I've not heard of the production. I do know some of those works. Uh, okay. He, he- those were some of his, you know, storyteller, let me write a little thing here and there while I'm procrastinating, finishing the Lord of the Rings kind mm. of things. Got it. All right. So um, that's uh, the known radio history that I'm aware of. Uh, in terms of the animated history, we've got um, three films that have been produced and one that is in production. So in 77, uh, Rankin and Bass released The Hobbit. And I think I mentioned that before that I watched that live probably when I was a kid. Oh, yeah. Uh, good stuff. In 78, ne- the next year, they release uh, Lord of the Rings. And then in 1980, they release Return of the King. And I don't have much of a memory of Lord of the Rings or Return of the King animated ones. I certainly remember The Hobbit, though. Yeah, I think, I don't remember which one, but Studio Ghibli, or what would become Studio Ghibli, was involved with that in some way, which is mm-hmm. kind of interesting to see where they're at now. They're, they're kind of the gold standard for uh, a lot of animation films. Interesting. Cool. And then in um, we have an announcement that in 2024, New Line and Warner are uh, developing, uh, to be released in 2024, uh, a animated film called The War of the Rohirrim. And it's apparently going to be set uh, about 250 years before the events of The Lord of the Rings. Yeah, I mean, there's some controversy about this one, because okay. a lot of people think that they're doing it just to retain the film rights. 
Yeah. I don't know if that's true. It mm-hmm. might be good. Because they lose the good. rights if if they don't keep producing stuff, right? Is that correct? I don't know the specifics, but it seems mm-hmm. like they feel like they need to continue to produce films in order to retain the rights. Got it. Okay. Interesting. Okay. So then uh, into the films, obviously we have the Lord uh, uh, Lord of the Rings, um, Peter Jackson films in 2001, 2002, 2003, Lord of the Rings, Two Towers, and Return of the King. Very well mm-hmm. known, very well beloved. Obviously, uh, Jim and Aaron uh, have a great uh, commission uh, about these, uh, and they, they go in depth uh, to some of the production stuff. So definitely go check that out on the Bald Move uh, website. Um, and then obviously we've got the uh, Peter Jackson uh, sort of uh, uh, do it or else films uh, in <laughs> 2012, 2013, and 14. Uh, the Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey, Desolation of Smog, and The Battle of the Five Armies. And I don't want to be a hater or nothing, but I, I, I have not seen all three of these, and and I've I've watched little bits and pieces, and I I can't, I I just couldn't. I have suffered through them. Um, you know, I'll I'll say this. There are very good parts of them. There Uh are parts that really land. There are a lot of parts where you say this could have been edited down. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and what, what really I think bothered a lot of people about those was the invention of characters and the addition of, uh, more like romance triangles and things like that. Um, which will be interesting to see as we get into the TV series because it does seem like they are leaning towards some artificial elf-human romance, which mm. does not always land when they add romance into Tolkien. Interesting. Yeah, that's um, you, you, you can see the studio, maybe that's the hand of the studio there um, trying to play to at least American audiences, even though any major release now needs to be a worldwide, like their numbers have to hit worldwide numbers uh, to be considered successes anymore. The American market, I think, is shrunk too small I mean, or compared to some other markets. Um, but certainly, yeah, in, injecting that kind of element seems like it's uh, pandering to the audience a little bit or what they think the audience wants. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole thing in in Tolkien about elf and human romance, and it's very rare, and it's very special, and mm-hmm. it's, uh, you know, we saw Arwen and Aragorn in The Lord of the mm-hmm. Rings. Uh, in the movies, they played that up more than they did in the books. That's true. That's so, true. I, I don't know. It might work, and it might not. I can't judge yet. Got it. Now, um, to round out the film history, there's two things that I wanted to point out as sort of special mention. In 2009, um, a director named uh, Bouchard and another director named, I think, Kim Madison is her name, released their two YouTube film releases. Film releases? I don't know. Fanfic releases. One, uh, Bouchard released The Hunt for Gollum and Madison released Born of Hope. And I think the hunt for Gollum is is um, uh, Gandalf charging Aragorn with going to find uh, Gollum, and I'm not sure what the Born of Hope one was. I, I missed uh, writing the the summary down, but these are interesting because these two productions skirt that line, kind of like the Star Trek. There's an adaptation of the original series on YouTube as well, mm-hmm. where they have clearly walked this fine line in the rights that. They're not doing these for monetary value, and they're, they're they're in a couple of other little areas. They're able to skirt this line where they're able to put these out to produce them, and then put them out. And the rights holders have no 
legal recourse against them. There's nothing for them to sue against because they're mm. not violating any of the rights. Interesting. I haven't seen these two YouTube things. I'm really interested because I bet the productions and stories are, are really interesting and compelling. So I don't know. Maybe we'll do a live watch or, or something like that. We're, we're, we're kicking around some of those ideas. Um, but uh, those are you can find those on YouTube quite easily. The Hunt for Gollum and Born of Hope. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, very. And then lastly, the last category, television history. And we've only got one entry in that, and that is Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power by Amazon. Uh, supposedly five seasons. That's what they have the, the rights for. And I think Amazon, did Amazon commit to the full five seasons? Um, I'm not so sure. I think that they did have to commit. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a great article by The Hollywood Reporter where they, they did this in 2018 when the deal was settled. It's called Inside Amazon's $250 million Lord of the Rings deal. It's very much a creature of the times by Tatiana Siegel. And mm-hmm. it goes into some of these rights issues. It goes into uh, what Amazon has committed to. And so I'd recommend that read. We'll put that in the show notes. Okay. Well, I think that um, wraps up the discussion of how Tolkien's works have been adapted for dramatic adaptations. And again, if you want to see anything more about this, definitely check out the Tolkien Society's website, and they have all of this in in an amazing um, uh, timeline. Okay, let's talk about some literary themes that we're going to see in this next section here. um, In our notes, you've got Fall from Grace, Fear of Death, and The Power of Lies listed out. Yeah, so those are themes that I think carry through a lot of Tolkien's work, but they're especially poignant during the fall of Numenor. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about Fall from Grace. Yeah, so we talked about in the last episode how this island of Numenor was this paradise for men. You know, these were, men were living longer lives. They were getting mm. taught by the elves how to live better. Their weather was perfect. And they were just in a, in a really good state. You know, they, they didn't have to do much to live good lives. Mm-hmm. But the problem is that they started to move away from their alliance with the Valar and the elves. They wanted more. They wanted more life. They wanted more power. They wanted more land. Mm-hmm. And as that happens, they start to wither. They start to live shorter lives. They start to cling to uh, life. It's like the harder they hold on, the the looser their grip gets. Right. And so that links up with the other theme, fear of death, mm. in that they're so afraid of death, of this unknowing things, because the gift of men from Eru Iluvatar, the creator god, is that they are mortal, and they get to leave Arda, they get to leave creation, mm-hmm. and they get to, to rest, you know? Now, nobody knows where men go when they die, not even the Valar. And that's scary to a lot of men. It's interesting. I could almost see that that the gift that that was meant to be given was like you've got a beginning, middle, and end now. Like you, it's like the last French fry in the bag. Like if you know, you know, it's coming, and when you have it, it's it's all the more better. But if it's not there, then you're sort of uh, psychologically you're disappointed, right? And so maybe the gift was an intention of, like, everything is sweeter because you know it's going to come to an end. Would that be a a reasonable thought about that? Yeah, perhaps. It's just that, Mm -hmm. you know, the elves, and we'll get into elves in the next episode, but they're going to Amon. They're going to the Undying Lands, even if they die. Mm. And so they have a certainty of where they're going. Mm. And 
men just don't. And especially because the kings of Numenor are descended partially from elves, there's an extra level of comparison with the elves and an extra level of, well, they fought against uh, Morgoth, sure. Some of them didn't, and they still get to live forever. Mm -hmm. And yet we have to die even after a long period of time. And so they start to get jealous. They start to fear death. You know, what is this uncertainty? I've been, I've been healthy my whole life, and then, then I wither and I'm gone. What happens? And then that's where uh, Sauron um, and the power of lies sort of comes in under uh, under washing all of this, to sort of washing out the supports of all of these other, and uh, you know the, the the support pillars there of this of hey like you get to die. It's like isn't that great? And they're like no. And then like now you've got somebody who's lying about this stuff as well. Yeah, and those lies started well before Sauron too with Morgoth, his mm. boss. Mm-hmm. And what Sauron really did was he preyed upon the fear that Morgoth put in men about death. Because it's it's made pretty clear in the Silmarillion that men didn't fear death when they were first, you know, awakened. Mm-hmm. It was Morgoth that put the fear of death and the fear of darkness into them. Got it. And uh, and then they prayed and then preyed upon that and and used lies to empower that. Right. And so Sauron is able to capitalize on those lies and sort of play on the fear of death to cause this fall from grace. And that's what we're going to see when we go through this story. Great. Great. Okay, cool. All right. So let's uh, take a break and then we're going to come back and we will get into the fall of Numenor. And we're back. So, John, the fall of Numenor. We teased this a little bit at the end of our last episode, talking a little bit about Sauron. And uh, I've got a feeling you've got some nasty business in store for us uh, on this deep dive about the fall of Numenor. Nasty business indeed, but it is definitely the meat of Numenor. Mm -hmm. I'm hoping to see a lot of the story in the show because it's probably the most fascinating material in the Second Age. So you think that this is going to be like what we're going to talk about today is is going to make up a lot of the Rings and Power core storyline? I certainly hope so. I mean, it's it's such a okay. fascinating story. Right. Well, we'll certainly get more into that once we get some more trailers and uh, and get some more information as we get closer to the publication date. So we have a shadow falling across Numenor. Yeah, this shadow is going to be based on that fear of death that we were talking about before. Uh, the gift mm. of men and how they die and they don't know where they're going. And it's supposed to be a positive thing. But mm -hmm. Melkor Morgoth corrupted this in the first age. And that still lingers now. Mm. Right. So the men start to get a little upset with the Valar? Yeah. You know, Sauron is sowing these seeds in the world in general. And they're leaking back to Numenor. The Numenor, remember, is nearby but not allowed to go to the Undying Land. So they're aware of these immortal beings. The elves are coming to visit. But yet these Numenorians who served the Valar in the First Age are still dying around 200, 400 years, depending on who you're descended from. Mm -hmm. So they feel a little bit jealous about this. 
Mm. So we've got Sauron to the east of them, and they're going over there and educating and interacting with the, the folks in, in Middle-earth. But then they're also going back west, and inter- or the elves are coming over, and they're interacting with them. So they're kind of caught in between these two polar influences. Would that be a fair assessment? Yeah, you know, you got to remember what we talked about last time, that Middle-earth had mm. been forsaken by mm. the Valar. And the Numenorians were basically acting as these lords over the Middle-earth men, uh, teaching them how to live better. They were they were almost acting as their their gods, you know, as the Valar, the mm-hmm. powers of Middle Earth. Interesting. And so Sauron had created a foothold for himself in Middle Earth, seeing this void, seeing how the Valar had forsaken the land, and he had started to sort of taunt the kings of Numenor and say, mm, "I guess I'm king now." <laughs> hmm. Interesting. Okay, and so now we've got. Uh, a new character we're bringing in, in here, Tar Palantir. Am I pronouncing that right? Yeah. And let's just make clear that this has been now several thousand years of the existence of Numenor. We've had mm. many kings. We've had many queens. And mm. it was only over time that this title of Tar, which is the elvish word for king, uh, okay. morphs into the word R, the title R, which is the Numenorean speech word for king. And that's going to mm. signal a, a move away from faith, from the Valar, from the elves. And so remember I said last time, watch the titles of the kings. Now we have mm-hmm. Tar Palantir coming in, replacing an mm-hmm. R. So he's replacing this king who was dissonant with the Valar. And he is the repentant. He's Tar Palantir. He's the far-seeing. Remember the seeing stones, the Palantiri? I was going to ask, uh, was that the same as the Seeing Stones? Is that the, the same name, at least? Yeah, it's the same name. Now, the Numer- Numenorians do have the Seeing Stones at this point. They they got them mm-hmm. as gifts from the elves. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not connected to the name of Tar Palantir, but it's the same thing, the Far-Seeing. Mm, got so it. he is the Far-Seeing, so he's going to create a prophecy. And this prophecy says, when the white tree of Numenor perishes, so shall the line of kings come to its end. Doesn't sound good. Not good at all, David. Not good at all. <laughs> and I think you've been uh, reminding us all along to pay attention to the trees, right? Got to pay attention to the trees. Got to pay attention to the titles of the kings. Okay. So we have now um, some strife among the leadership of uh, the Numenorians. So are we at the stage of a civil war here? Pretty much. It's not a total civil war. There's not like a huge battle happening, but there's a guy mm-hmm. named, well, he has a different name, but the title he's going to take is Arfarazon, mm-hmm. and he's going to be the last king of Numenor. Spoiler alert. Warp, warp. And he comes back from Middle-earth after plundering and conquering, and he comes back with all these riches and says, hey, Tarpolintir is really doing a, a kind of a bad job. I mean, he's repenting. What, what do we have to apologize for? Let's make Numenor great again. Uh, and- <laughs> <laughs> this is getting strangely uh, relevant. Um, this is not a political podcast by any means, but uh, interesting how Tolkien is speaking to us uh, from many decades ago. So continue, please. So he's ready to make Numenor great again. Now, Tar Palantir. <laughs> I'm going to laugh every time have- you say that. <laughs> Tar doesn't have a son, but he has a daughter named Muriel. Mm-hmm. I think this is my conspiracy theory about the show. I think they're going to replace mm. Muriel with this fictional sister of Isildur that they've created. Mm. But 
As far as we're concerned for the lore of Tolkien, Arfarasone usurps the throne by marrying Muriel against her will mm-hmm. and against the laws of Numenor because she is his family. They're both from the line of Elros. That's not mm-hmm. cool. Mm-hmm. And he comes back to R, the title R, which is a Numenorian title. He's against the Valar again. He's against the elves. The elves stop coming uh, to Numenor. They stop trading with Numenor. And the Numenorians are on their own pretty much at this point. This is not a good state of affairs. So is, this is when we start to get the faithful and the traditionalist. I forget what we called them in the last episode. But Let's basically call them the Kingsmen. The Kingsmen. Okay, got it. So this is where we're really this this separating between uh, these two factions is happening. Yes, and you know, Arfarazon was a friend of Amundil. You'll remember from last episode, he's the grandfather of Isildur, the guy who cut the ring off Sauron's finger. Mm-hmm. And Amundil is the leader of the faithful, but Arfarazon is the opposite of the faithful. But Amundil is still in his council pretty much until the end. Mm-hmm. But the faithful are going to be, remember, Amundil, Elendil, his son, and then his mm-hmm. son... Isildur and Isildur's brother Anarion. Got it. Okay, so we got the faithful, and they're they're eventually. We'll we'll get to it, but they're eventually going to have a another role to play down the road here. They sure are. But for now, they've been moved from the west coast from Andunie to Romena. Mm-hmm. Uh, Amandil mm-hmm. is going to be the last lord of Andunie. He's you know they're not going to be allowed to stay there. So they go from the west to the east. Then so they're closer to Middle Earth side now. Right. The king brought them right under his eye because he wanted to keep an eye on them. He said, you know, uh, these guys, under his I'm eye. not sure if uh, they're going to do the right thing by me. They seem like they're a little more on the side of the Valar and the elves, and I'm not loving that. Mm. So the king says, hey, you got to move to the other side. Exactly. So they move. Got it. Okay. All right. So where is Sauron in all of this? What's happening with uh, our friend here? So like I said, Sauron is over in Middle-earth, sort of taunting the Numenorians. Mm. He's attacking a few of their holds mm. in, in Middle-earth and uh, taking more people and more men from Middle-earth under his dominion. He's like, I'm right here. You know, I'm the king of everything. What are you going to do, Arfarazone? <laughs> <laughs> okay. And he goes, hit me. No. <laughs> right. <laughs> and Arfarazon builds up his army uh-huh. and he sails to Middle Earth to conquer Sauron. And Sauron had actually sort of misplayed his hand at this point because the Numenorians came and Sauron goes, Well, I don't think my army can handle this. I, I, I didn't really plan for this alternative. Arfarazon comes with his army and Sauron kneels in front of Arfarazon and says, You know what? No battle. No battle. We're all cool. Uh, I'm going to serve under you. Don't worry. I'm a, I'm a really good advisor. So take me under your wing mm. and I will be your advisor. You're the king. We'll, we'll be all cool. And uh, he, he wanted to be left in Middle Earth. But Arfarazon says, nah, I don't think so. I think you're going to come with me to Armenelos, to the capital of Numenor. And he's going to hang out mm-hmm. there along with the faithful, along with the king's men. And uh, he's going to have some opportunities to influence things. So let me ask you a couple of questions then. So is this, does this happen, does Sauron's capture happen before or after the Forging of the Rings? Or is the Forging of the Rings a a longer term project? The Forging of the Rings happens before the capture. So Sauron had been hanging out in Middle Earth for quite a long time, taking on a few disguises Mm -hmm. and hanging out with elves in some areas, hanging out with men in the other areas, building Barad-dur, that Mm -hmm. big fortress. Uh, so he's already made the rings, mm-hmm. and, and three of them went to Numenorians already. 
though that doesn't really come into play in Got the fall it. of Numenor, but it's it's fun to fun trivia to know. Okay. So, um and I think we have on our schedule of uh one of our upcoming episodes or chapters is to talk about the forging of the rings themselves, oh, yeah. right? That's a whole day. Right. Okay. <laughs> Great. So we're going to get into that more specifically. So anyway, so some of the rings have been forged. Uh, R4's own goes over. Sauron says, oh, my bad, my bad. We're cool. I'll be your advisor. And R4's own says, yeah, and I'm taking you with me. Is Sauron surprised by this or was this part of his plan? In the writings, it pretty much says, because Sauron is a man with a lot of alternatives or a Maiar mm. with, with a lot of alternatives. And in his mind, he was like, I can make this work. You know, mm. <laughs> this will work okay. for me. Got it. So, and it's interesting because if he then sort of becomes this advisor dripping poison in his ear, that is very similar to the story of uh, Wormtongue and um, who is the king of the, um, of the, the, of the mark. Um, Theoden. Theoden, yeah. So it's a very parallel story or, you know, it's a trick that he's, you know, used before. So he's using it again with Theoden. Yeah, although uh, Saruman was the one who was influencing Theoden. Right, with Wormtongue. But still, like, it's a it's a play that they had in their book, right? So Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, it should be clear that Sauron really hates the Numenorians just as much as he hates the elves because they were the ones who took down his master, Melkor, Morgoth. Mm, mm-hmm. Right. So we've gotten back to Numenor. We've made it great again. Yeah. It's just It's just living in riches. <laughs> Everyone's mm-hmm. living it up. They're living shorter lives because they're clinging to life and they're obsessed with building temples for themselves, you know, building these graves that are elaborate for themselves and, and being more obsessed with, you know, their lives and their glory than they are with serving the Valar and, and the gift of men, which is death. Mm, okay. And where does this lead them? So within three years, Sauron has a ton of influence over the king. He's basically leading the council He's the one mm. ruling behind him. He's the guy behind the curtain. And Sauron pulls Arfarazon aside at some point, and he says, you know, I know that you have this temple to, you know, this this mountain to Eru Luvatar, Tarma, but I have a secret for you, which is that the Valar created Eru Luvatar. He doesn't really exist. This monolithic, this monotheistic god that you have doesn't really exist. There is, though, uh-huh. a real monotheistic god, and that is Melkor, the Lord of Darkness. Oh. Now, we know that Melkor is not the creator, but in right. fact, one of the Valar, and he's been cast out into the void because he caused a lot of trouble in the first age. That was Sauron's boss. Right. But he convinces Arpharason, no, 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 Eru Luvatar, that's not a real dude. That's just a construction made to control you. Instead, it's Melkor. Mm-hmm. So they're going to build a temple uh-huh. to Melkor in their city, in Armenelos. Okay. And they're going to ban uh, worship. They're going to ban even going to Meneltarma, the shrine to Eru Iluvatar. Right. That is the big natural shrine mountain where the king would go on certain holy days and stuff to talk, right? That was at the center of the five-pointed star of, of Numenor. Yeah. And remember, through all this, the Valar are watching. Manway's eagles are circling the mountain whenever people are praying. So they know mm-hmm. that people have stopped coming. They know that something weird is happening in Numenor. And the mm. Numenor, the Numenorians begin to make sacrifices in this giant temple that they create. Uh, made The first one is made from wood from the white tree Nimloth, which will be destroyed. Wait, 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 wait. They cut down the tree? 
they're going to cut down the tree. Now, before they do that, Isildur, mm-hmm. grandson to Amandil, son to Elendil, mm-hmm. cutter of rings and fingers, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. he sneaks into this little court that the, the tree is in, and he grabs a fruit from the white tree, Nimloth, and he sneaks off with it, and he's injured in the process, but he plants the white tree, and Amandil and Elendil tend it for a little bit, and when it begins to sprout, Isildur begins to heal from his wounds and makes a full recovery. Faith is rewarded. Yeah, I was just going to say, this is that faith is rewarded thing, right? Oh, yeah. Mm. Right. And it's not necessarily the tree that is, like, giving off healing vibes or something. It's the fact that he's living um, uh, he's living in, in accordance with, with uh, uh, being faithful with the Valar, right? That's more the action of the healing as opposed to the tree itself giving him off good vibes or kind of a gray area there. Yeah, I think it's left open for interpretation a little bit, but I think that you can read it either way. I lean towards the the Valor were helping him because they knew that he was doing the right thing. Right, because he was demonstrating that he was doing the right thing. Right, exactly. Actually taking actions. Right, got it. Okay. So so he sneaks off with this tree and then our far zones people cut it down and build a, a, a not nice temple. Yes, they build this great temple, and the Numenorians are building up in power and in wealth because Sauron is helping them conquer more people in Middle-earth and things like that. Uh, they're growing ever hungry for power and domination. They're only going to Middle-earth to wage war at this point, not to help them at all, so they've completely turned around. Middle-earth is suffering because of them. And all this time... Sauron is trying to convince Arfarazon to un- invade the Undying Lands, invade Amon, and take over for the Valar. He oh, says. wait, you mean to go to go west? He wants him to go west. He wants him to break the ban. Oh, okay. And he tells him, you're going to get immortality if you go west. It's the Undying Lands. Of course you're going to be immortal. People can't die there. So this is where the sort of fall of grace and fear of death stuff is really starting to play. They're, they're afraid of dying, um, and they're getting further and further away from being in accordance with the Valar. Exactly. And these lies mm. that Sauron is sowing, they really mm. fester for a really long time. Mm. This is years and years that Sauron is influencing our far so and obviously we won't be able to get that in the show. Mm-hmm. But the idea is still there that this is just this festering wound of lies that Sauron is setting forth for Arfarazon and the rest of the Numenorians. And he's and the power of the lie is really playing on their fear of death, like this fact that we don't know where we go when we die, and we die, and other people don't, and that's not cool. And so he's really able to capitalize on their insecurity around this. Yeah, he's just sowing what Morgoth started. When men first mm. were born, they were not afraid of death, but Morgoth turned the darkness into a fearful thing. Right, right. Okay, so do they go to the West? Do they try to invade? Well, Amandil gets word that, you know, we're thinking about going to Amon, we're thinking about breaking the ban, we're probably going to do it. I'm just a little afraid because I'm not sure if I could defeat the Valar. And Amandil says, I'm going to follow in the footsteps of my ancestor Arendil. Now, remember, that's the guy who went to Numenor on behalf of men and elves to plead for the Mm -hmm. mercy of the Valar and get them to get rid of Morgoth in the First Age. That's the Mm -hmm. whole reason they're in Numenor. 
Mm-hmm. So Amandil says, I'll break the ban. I'll take the fall as long as I can plead for their mercy for you guys. But, you know, be ready to leave because I don't even know if I'm going to come back from this. Okay, so uh, I just want to get some clarification here. So Amandil says what? He's going to go to the Undying Lands or he's going to go to Middle Earth? He's going to go to the Undying Lands to see the Valar. He's going to break the ban. Oh, right. To, to And to try to tip them off. Right. He's going to say, look... We're really sorry. This guy's nuts. He doesn't speak for all of us. <laughs> He's made right. Numenor not so great again, in my opinion. It's not you know not all Numenorians. And did I, he <laughs> actually say they're they're planning to to invade? Like, did he actually tip off to to that, or or is he just begging for mercy? Well, we don't know because he sailed off and we never saw him again. And there's no writing about what happened after that. Uh oh. Okay, got it. So. Who knows what Tolkien, Tolkien was thinking there, but got it. So he, he goes off, disappears, and then what happens? So then the king is getting ready to leave. His The only advisor that was moderating him, Amandil, had disappeared because, you know, he was still mm-hmm. on the council. And mm-hmm. the eagles get wind of this, and they descend upon Numenor and begin to attack. Uh, not good. I, I don't want to be attacked by giant, you know, eagles. That oh, are, me like, either. That are the power of gods. Yeah. Me either. Okay, so... Eagles attack. And the giant temple that they had erected is struck by lightning and cracked. Sauron is just Ooh. on top of the, the temple, just yelling and being like, I got this, guys. It's me. Mm-hmm. And Arafarazon says, look, they're attacking us. You know, Sauron and Arafarazon are rallying the troops saying, look, the Valar are attacking us. We have no choice now. So they get on the shore and they leave and they go to Amman. Right, so they go west. So they're 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 being attacked. They're saying yeah, the Valar are coming. So our strategy is not going to stay here and fight. We're going to go over to the Undying Lands and then go to cause the trouble over there. Yeah, they say that's it. They had a preemptive strike. We're going now. Meanwhile, they had been preparing mm. for battle the whole time, so it was pretty dishonest. But it's okay. But meanwhile, Elendil is still out there, right? Like we're. I mean, we're. Or, or is that am I am I um, am I getting ahead of the story a little bit? Elendil's still out there. We'll get to them in a second. But they're they're okay. there. They're prepared to leave at a moment's notice. They're really against this. They're just avoiding this whole situation if they can. Okay, got it. All right. So Arfarzon goes to Amon. He goes to Amon and he sets himself on the shore and he stands on the shores of Tyrion. And he looks up and he's he's like, wow, this is beautiful and amazing. And for a moment, he's remorseful and he repents. But he's about to go do the thing anyway, because it's kind of too late. And at that moment, the Valar do this really incredible thing, which is, you know, they're this pantheon. Zeus basically is Mm. ruling them, Manwe. And Manwe and Mm. the rest of the Valar say, Eru Luvatar, we messed up. We forsook Middle-earth. We put these people, these super-powered men, on this island to see us. We don't know what to do at this point. We don't want to fight them here. Can you help us? And Eru Luvatar says, hold my beer. And <laughs> just, to, just to preface, this is a, a seismic event. This is mm. one of the foundational events of the Middle-earth that we see in the Third Age. And is God that- is pissed. God is pissed. The Abrahamic creator God, who has done, like, nothing this entire time, Mm. says, I am ready to do something. Right. And so he, first of all, he 
causes an avalanche that kills all of the Numenorians on the shore of Tyrion, on the shore of Amon. Mm. And he opens up a rift in the middle of the ocean where Numenor is. So, like, Numenor is in the middle of this rift. And the whole island goes down into this giant chasm and is completely destroyed. But not only that, this rift then separates Ammon from the world entirely. And at this point, it had been a flat earth. It had been, you could sail right to Ammon, and there was no end to the world, basically. Nobody had found it, at least. Mm -hmm. And it, it had been a flat earth. But what he does is he turns the world around. In this, Eru Luvatar what? turns the world round. So Tolkien's actually explaining, we go back to Tolkien the Catholic, he's sort of what? rationalizing flat earth theory uh-huh. to a round earth theory. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. We're getting in some uh, geometry and physics here, like uh, Mobius loop uh, action. It's a very interesting idea, and so now we've we've completely removed the Undying Lands from the planet. Nobody can sail there anymore without the blessings of the Valar, because there's supposedly these secret paths where you can still sell, sell there. Um, it's it's in this different realm, basically. Interesting. Okay, so God's pissed. He has a mountain fall on the Numenorians who've invaded. And then separates the Undying Lands, which can only be reached now through these sort of wormhole-like portals. you got to have the right ship and the right navigator and all that kind of stuff. So what happens to Elendil? Elendil had been prepared for this to happen. Amandil had said, you know, this is probably not going to go well. So you might not see me again. And they don't see him again. Mm-hmm. Um, so be prepared to leave. And they have nine ships. They have a few for... Uh, for Elendil, they have a few for Isildur, and they have a few for Anarion. And they're just ready mm-hmm. to go. They bring with them the Palantiri, which is how they get to Middle-earth. They bring with them, Isildur brings with him a sapling of Nimloth, the white tree, mm-hmm. which is going right. to become the white tree of Gondor. Right. And they go to leave, and their their ships are just, like, getting destroyed. But all of a sudden, this great gust of wind brings them towards Middle-earth. Mm. And they get there safely. And then they set up shop in Middle-earth proper. That's how we're going to start to get the kingdoms of the Numenorians, or I guess the post-Numenorians. It's like Mm post-rock, you know? Right. (laughs) And that's like when, in in the movie, when um, they send Boromir over the falls, there's those great, ginormous statues there. Like, that stuff was uh, created by the Numenorians who escaped the fall of Numenor. Yeah, and like Orthanc, the the fortress where Saruman is holed up. That's a big Numenorean right. fortress. So Gondor and Arnor are going to be the resulting kingdoms. Mm-hmm. We have one last loose end to tie up, though. Sauron. Oh, yeah. Sauron, my favorite guy. He <laughs> stayed on Numenor the whole time, and he's he nearly perishes. Really? Okay. But he escapes. He lost his body, because remember, he's one of the Maiar. The Maiar don't have to take a body. But they can. Mm. And he had been okay. appearing fair to men. And he mm-hmm. had been appearing fair to elves. That's a spoiler for next episode. Okay. But he can't take a fair form anymore. Now, after this, he's stuck in his Dark Lord appearance that we see in The Lord of the Rings. Interesting. All right. So, uh, to recap then, we have a bunch of men living in paradise. Uh, a race, The race of men. 
they have been trading with the elves and trading with uh, the other folks that are in Middle Earth. Um, things start to go wrong a little bit because Sauron's over there causing some troubles. They go over to grab him. He says, oh, my bad. You got me. And he goes back with them and all the while influ- continues his sort of poisonous influence gets them to convert to human sacrifice and dogs and cats living together. And then he says, uh, God doesn't exist. Go over to the Undying Lands and, you know, you can live immortally. You don't have to be afraid of death anymore. But then God, uh, the the Valar, uh, um, go, oops, hey, God, we kind of screwed up here. Can you help us out? And then God sorts everybody out. And then Elendil uh, and some people escape over to Middle-earth. Is that uh, a... Um, an accurate summation? That sounds good to me. Okay, great. So what's up next uh, in our next chapter? Next, we've got to go over to Middle-earth, because that's where everything's going to be from now on. We don't have much Numenor to go left on. Okay. And we're going to head over to the elves, and we're going to learn mm-hmm. a little bit about who the elves are, what kind of groups they're in, and once we have a handle on that, we'll be able to move forward in the story of the Forging of the Rings. Sounds great. I'm looking forward to the next chapter. The Second Age Podcast is produced by the Lorehounds and published by Bald Move. You can send questions and feedback about this podcast to secondage at baldmove.com. For more Rings of Power content, subscribe to Dug Too Deep on your favorite podcast app. Ad-free versions of this and all other Bald Move podcasts can be yours by going to patreon.com slash baldmove. Check the show notes for reading recommendations and more info. Thanks for listening. A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works, and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond.